0: warm welcome to you all hope you'll soundly enjoy our program
1: started with stinking paws. then it was in my head the dangers of being a multi-podcast host
2: must be terrible especially at your age
1: the pressure the pressure it's just (laughs) I'm as old as this film oh my god Um, yes it is is, yes the same year I was born um okay Real Britannia, a very British podcast about very British movies with just a hint of professionalism. Hi everybody, my name's Scott. With me today, again, is Stephen. Welcome, sir.
2: Thank you very much. Um, uh, Pleasure to be here.
1: Just, Just to fill in our dear listener on the state of play with Tony, because I'm not too sure how these episodes are going to be broadcast, in what episode order they're going to be put out. Tony is still with us. He's alive and well. He's fine. He's absolutely fine. But Tony... As we're fully aware, Stephen, sometimes real life does have to take hold sometimes and kick you in the balls or, you know, just tends to get in the way of podcasting. And it yeah. has done. It has done with Tony. So he will be back. I spoke to him on Friday, um, and we've got some episodes lined up. But Stephen, very kindly, who has now been welcome into the the Real Britannia family, is, is in the fold now, as it were, as co-host, part of, part of the team, has kindly agreed to continue, even after his... Uh, You know, first experience of Excalibur with us very recently. (laughs) (laughs) And it was my choice for you this week. Literally just remarked off air that this film is as old as I am. It was was, uh, released in the same year that I was born. We're going back to 1969. Ken Loach's Kez, which I believe was his second feature after poor cow or something wasn't he? his first one i think
2: um yeah he, before this he'd done poor cow and then also um for television um kathy come home he'd been involved in that hadn't he of
1: course he had a um, lot of the play for but, today's um, and things yeah. yeah
2: but um obviously he's got quite a, a back catalogue now um, at this stage in his life um and he, you know but uh and then quite a, a lot of good films in there as well that i'm i'm a fan of but yes this was which was this was the start of it all really
1: okay let's play the trailer and we'll be back straight after with our review of kiz Loach, the director of this episode's review, Kez, has a career spanning over 60 years and over 60 films. Amongst his work, there are of course the 26 theatrical features, but also an impressive body of documentaries and dramas made for television. A veteran of the Wednesday Play series on the BBC in the 60s, he, along with producer Tony Garnett were instrumental in revolutionising British TV drama. Together, they created a series of stylistically ambitious films that sparked intense political debate. What stood these dramas apart from what had been seen previously was the influence of genres such as Italian neo-realism through things such as location shooting and a cast of non-professional actors. There was also stimuli from the French New Wave directors with jump cuts and disjointed narratives. And by using these techniques, they created what could be seen as a new genre, the docudrama. By using documentary techniques to tell fictional stories, the films would address a wide range of social issues, from homelessness and teenage delinquency to union politics and abortion. This artistic revolution achieved an emotional realism previously unseen and it took British television off the stage and into the streets. Spread acknowledgement for Garnet and Loach was first achieved with Up the Junction in 1965, an episodic free-willing story of three young working-class women in Clapham. As part of the BBC's Wednesday play series, it gained an audience of 10 million viewers and the corporation received over 40 complaints, mainly for the bad language and its depiction of abortion. The play featured pop songs of the time on its soundtrack and the film itself was edited to match the rhythm of the songs. In one of the more memorable and most complained about scenes, the play's soundtrack juxtaposes a song about male sexual desire with one of the female characters undergoing an induced miscarriage during an illegal backstreet abortion. There were also documentary elements throughout the narrative, such as an interview with a doctor advocating a change in the law to prevent the 35 deaths that occurred each year from backstreet abortions. The inclusion of this documentary material caused confusion among some viewers, who were unsure whether they were watching a fictional play or the continuation of a news broadcast that had aired just before the Wednesday play.
0: Yeah, she's pretty rough. Ow! Oh, Should I get the doctor? No. They might try save the baby. And I don't want no kiss on that, gink. Winnie says she can't come, come. All right, Ducky. They
2: said she started.
0: Yeah, that's right. You know who she is. I told her, didn't I to keep away from him? <laughs> <laughs> i lucky I ain't got my health and strength, else I do him. Do him right up, I would. I'll hold you now in You go and get some dinner. Go on. Sit up, It'll be better. Ray says he did him scarlet, the one that he might get nicked. You better watch it for me at all. Poor Ray. Oh, 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 oh. All done, love. Soon be better. Oh, oh, oh. 52,000 abortions a year. That's 1,000 abortions a week. Something like five or six every hour of every day. And that's taking the minimum figure. Yes, yes. she said yes and held me so tight. Oh, yes, yes. yes. she said yes with all. She said yes and smiled at me Yes, she smiled at me And said
1: yeah Ken Loach's next collaboration with Tony Garnett is probably his most famous and has proved to be one of the most significant television events of the 1960s. Cathy Come Home from 1966 details the disintegration of a young family who become homeless. Once again, combining documentary and fiction techniques, the film reveals how failing public institutions tear at the psychological fabric of its patrons. Oh,
0: yes? I'm representing a nephew of the deceased. Mrs. Alley who died last week. And the fact is that my client now needs the unpaid rent for the current week and the back period during which he gathers from the rent book that you was in arrears. In arrears? Are you yeah. sure? Yeah. Well, I didn't know Mrs. Alley had any relatives. Well, she does. Well, I'm sorry, but I can't oblige you at the moment. You see, Mrs. Alley said we could owe the rent for a few weeks because my Reg has been ill. Yeah. Well, I mean, now he's better we'll pay you. Of course we will. Yeah. But just give us a few weeks, that's all. And, I mean, I'll even go out to work as well. What Mrs. Alley said and what my client wants are completely different. So you'd better find some way to pay off. OK? You couldn't talk to him. It was like it was hopeless trying to talk to him. What, three months in arrears? Well, I know he's blocking. I mean, who would he think he's talking to? How long has he said he's been round it? Well, it's four weeks. Well, four weeks? He says here we are in three months. I mean, well, who are we supposed to pay this rent to? I mean, he never comes round. I mean, how would you expect to collect it? Have another look at the letter. What well, he says here he's gonna kick us out. Well, they can't evict you these days. I saw they passed a law about it. Nonsense. Well, he says here he can. Hey, look, I've told you once we'll pay you, if only you'll give us time. I know your game. You want to get us out so you can charge someone else key money. My client needs this place for himself and his relatives, so you better get out. You may have heard that eviction is legal these days, but in the case of a relative, what wants an house? You can still be evicted. Are you sure about that? And we'll get a court order to prove it. But we're protected tenants. I've been here every week now for a month. You've had time to
1: pay off. Cathy Come Home's final scene, in which social services take away Cathy's children, remains one of the most harrowing in all of Loach's work. It reached more than 6 million viewers in one evening, sparking a public debate on the issue of homelessness, which led directly to the development of Shelter, the homeless charity thankfully still active today. Loach and Garnet's first theatrical feature was Poor Cow in 1967. Boosted by the success of *Kathy Come Home and becoming increasingly more frustrated by the bureaucracy at the BBC, the film was produced through a Hollywood studio. Starring Carol White from *Kathy Come Home, as well as Terence Stamp, the movie, with obvious nods to Goddard and the French New Wave, tells the story of a young woman whose life is made up of bad choices. She marries and has a child with an abusive thief at a young age who quickly ends up in prison left alone she takes up with his friend another thief who seems to give her some happiness but who also ends up in prison she then takes up with a series of seedy types who offer nothing but momentary pleasure and it's not until her son goes missing that she briefly starts to realise what is most important to her Turn it up, Joy.
0: I'm not turning the telly
1: you up. You will turn it up. Oh,
0: no, I won't.
1: Look, I paid for it. You hand it, will you? Now, turn I it. I
0: am not turning the telly up. Why should I turn the telly up?
1: Because you're my old age. Turn, the telly turn up it up. Because I'm sitting a sandwich.
2: Now. I'm not turning the telly up. You can get over there and turn it up yourself.
1: Turn it up, Joy. Make me. Go on, I'll make, make you. Yeah. Go you on. won't be you conscious. dare. Get round there and turn it up.
0: You pig! Hmm.
1: I'm fed like a pig here. Yeah.
2: Two cheese sandwiches a day. That's all you deserve. Because you're a lazy bugger, that's why.
1: And so on to Kez. Made in 1969, Loach and Garnet formed their own production company to tell the dark and moving story of the young Barnsley lad who trains a kestrel in order to escape the daily problems of school, home and family as well as being forced to grow up in a world where he's probably not fully prepared. Possibly Ken Loach's finest work. It's an important movie in the history of British cinema a painfully accurate depiction of the tough working-class struggles in a northern town in the late 60s that just goes one step further than, say, Saturday Night and Sunday Morning or Billy Liar. For this movie, Loach doesn't have to rely on some of the tricks he used during his Wednesday play era. There are no jump cuts, very few uses of a handheld camera or sharp sudden sound cues, but we do get a cast chiefly made up of amateurs, lending a certain unique charm to the film. Here, Loach uses a natural yet controlled style visually to create something special that would typify the remainder of his career. During the 1970s and the 1980s, Loach's films were less successful, often suffering from poor distribution, lack of interest and political censorship. But many more movies and documentaries would follow throughout the next 50 years, with BAFTAs and a Palm door along the way. And we'll certainly be taking a look at a few of those, no doubt, in future episodes. But for now, we bring you the story of Billy Casper and Kez.
0: Sir. I know! You were! You were asleep! Why were you asleep? You were a scoundrel! Don't know, sir. They seem to
1: pick on you, don't they, Casper? Why is it?
0: Don't know, sir. Is it because you're a bad Maybe I am sometimes, but I'm not that bad, sir. This is Billy Casper. Billy Casper cheats, steals, lies, fights. Because, well, because he has to. You see, if you're not like the others, if you simply don't belong, then you have to manage alone. Alone. Unless. unless you have a friend. Like Kess. Come on, Kess. Come on, then. A very special friend. Who doesn't mind that you're different? For you. Well, I went out then, so for a breath of fresh air. And where are you going now? Employment officer. For interview. Well, get off then, lad. And God help your future employer. What makes Billy Casper the way he is? What's wrong with the boy? Perhaps, perhaps it's a secret. A secret shared only with Cass. like you, Casper. Casper, you make me sick. Every lesson it's the same old story. You've begged and borrowed and skived and scrounged. You might think it's funny. You might think he gets what's coming to him. You might be wrong
1: is uh, made in 1969, Stephen, but it was released on the 3rd of April, officially, 1970 in the UK, directed, as we said, by Ken Loach, based on A Kestrel for a Knave, written by Barry Hines, starring David Bradley, Brian Glover, Freddie Fletcher, Lynn Perry, Lynn Perry Colin Welland, and a host of unknown actors, actually, um, amateurs, as it were, because... Well, real um, people, really. It is real people, um... Your history of this film, you're similar to me. I believe you must have seen this a good four or five times.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I've seen all of Ken Ken Lurch's films. Um, in this case, Kenneth Lurch. he was credited. <laughs> True. Yeah. Uh, I've seen most of his yeah most of his films. Um, some of them more than others. Mm-hmm. R- Riff Raff is one of the ones I've seen most often, and that's um, in, in fact. That was how I met Ken Lodge, right, via that. Um, but we'll maybe mention oh, that later. Clang, but, um, name drop, uh, clang. Uh, <laughs> well, that's just it, yeah. I can't, can't help it, you know. Yeah, this the, the history with me, I, yes, I have seen this a number of times, and I've not actually seen it for a few years. But my original viewing of it was at school, of all things. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, being a, a Northern schoolboy, watching this film about a Northern schoolboy is quite meta, in a way. Yes. Um, thankfully, wasn't quite as dire uh, for me at the time <laughs> as it was for him, but um, you know, it, was, it, it Strangely enough, it was at the backdrop back of what was going on historically at the time when I was at school and, and seeing this. Mm-hmm. It was just at the tail end of the miners' strike, yes. so there's there's that kind of full circle with the the involvement of the mining community within Kes, and then what was actually going on, you know, on on the BBC news.
1: Yeah, very close to home for you. I mean, this is set in Barnsley, which is North Yorkshire or South Yorkshire. I always get mixed up. It's, it's South, so it's, isn't it? Yeah,
2: South Yorkshire. Yeah, it's it's about forty-five minutes drive away from from me, really,
1: from where you are. And this is sort of like yeah. Sheffield, Leeds area, isn't it? Barnsley. It's that. Yeah, it's part between of the
2: two. Yeah, yeah. Quite... Did you need subtitles for this? By the Do way? you
1: know what? I've I've, <laughs> <laughs> I've seen this a fair few times, so I was fully prepared for the thick Yorkshire accents. But even then, there were sometimes I'm thinking, oh, you mumbled a bit there, Bradley. I didn't quite catch what you meant there, but I got the gist of it, you know, <laughs> which, is, which is frightening because, you know, literally Yorkshire is, what, 300 miles away from where I'm sitting now? It's not, you know, we're not talking across six or seven US states we're travelling here. Um, it's just up the motorway. I, I, similar to you, we studied Kestrel-Frané by Barry Hines uh, in English Lit at school couple of years before you would have seen it but I remember seeing the movie on TV late 70s you know I was pre-teenager then and it was quite fortunate actually because when English teacher mentioned we're doing a kestrel for a knave because I was familiar with this you know this movie I said oh sir is that the one about you know the one about the boy that finds the kestrel and the mining community and all that like oh well done lad have you seen the have you read the book no, no, sorry, sorry I have seen the film. And It was exactly the same with To Kill a Mockingbird because all of my literary sort of knowledge was based on movie adaptations before I read the book. Have well, you? That's, read- how,
2: mm. that's how Kate Bush came up with some of her famous songs. She was credited <laughs> for doing a, a, a massively um, fantastic song that was about Wuthering Heights, which she'd never seen, never read the book. She'd only seen the film. So but she was, up, you know
1: oh that's all right then standing in the shadow of giants here um (laughs) have you read have you read the source material the barry Hines book
2: well this is it at school they got Mm. us to read certain parts of it not all Uh, of it but that's as far as no not all of it no this (laughs) is the 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 weird way it went at my school to be perfectly honest a lot of the time the stuff they did at my school was more crowd control rather than (laughs) education it was just to stop us out from going out into the streets and causing mayhem. So.
1: damage limitation so, basically yeah well,
2: that's it yeah. <laughs> yeah um so we read bits of it um so the source material that uh, you know i have dipped into but i haven't actually read the whole thing like like you now. how
1: i have uh, my copy here right. i was just flicking through it before we came on air um and i just found it very difficult to put it down it's a great book it's not a massive great great novel it's only a hundred or so pages long but the history something... of it mm, sorry go cool.
2: I was just gonna say there's some of them that are, are like that. I mean, you go back to the source material for um Get Carter. Yes. That's only about hundred and forty pages long.
1: True. And, yeah.
2: And and things like that. And but they've you know, they managed to actually get a, a full a full book out of it. And obviously there's the connection, as we mentioned before, with just talking about um the, the author. Mm. Um he was he was actually involved in um was it Kathy Come Home or um he was he was the producer of something other. So him and him and Ken Lurch had a a previous connection via that i think I think
1: what it? it was one of the producers of the wednesday play or play for today had read his previous novel which i think was called the blinder which was about a footballer and he said i want you to adapt this for a, a wednesday play which ken loach was you know a big part of on the bbc Mm. And Barry Hines said, you know what, you know, massive opportunity. You know, He could have like, made a lot of money, made a bit of a name for himself. This is pre-Kestrel for a Knave. He said, yeah. no, I'm, I'm writing this book about a boy and a Kestrel at the moment. I'd really like to finish it. Uh, and he said, okay, um, this producer who was uh, the producer of this, I can't think of his name, I'll, think, I'll find it in a second. Mm. Um, and he brought in the manuscript for Kestrel for a Knave and he said, right, I want the film rights to it. Boom, that was it. He he, he got it. He was Literally, the book was written the year before this movie was made. It was that current, you know, it was that recent. Mm. Um, well,
2: it's quite a, quite a pitch, isn't it? I'm writing a book about a boy and his, his kestrel, and you go, okay. But that's, that,
1: that's, that's one thing this film is not. It is not a story about a boy training a hawk. Because it, that's not, what, no, pe- no. what people think it is. Barry Hines was the teacher. He was English teacher at the school in Barnsley, where the film is filmed.
2: Oh, yes. Um, yeah, yeah.
1: And Loach wanted to use the actual school because it was how it was described in the book. You know, there was that playing field, uh, the football pitch is on, is on a slope, yeah. looking down towards the pit itself, and he thought, well, why not use the location that he describes in the book? And, that, and that's where all the actors, the kids, came from that school... David Bradley himself wasn't an actor. He was you know, plucked from the from the ranks of the pupils. And the teachers in the film were teachers there at the school. It's incredible when you think about it. The only possibly I think the only sort of professional actors in there, you, you might have to correct me on this. I would say Colin Welland and Lynn Perry were definitely probably the only two jobbing actors in this movie. And Brian Glover and Brian, wasn't he No. The, well I, was that was, Yeah. was he just I thought Brian Glover had, had acted prior to this, but apparently He was a PE teacher in a neighbouring school who was, in the evenings, quite famously, he was a wrestler, wasn't he, as well? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And this was his first gig. Oh, right. His first, well, noted gig, you know, first one that brought him to attention. But he was still making his living as a teacher at the time.
2: Was this the first thing for Freddie Fletcher as well?
1: I don't know. Again, I will have to check on that. Because I don't... Has Freddie Fletcher been anything else notable? Because I don't really remember him from anything Um, else.
2: Not not anything that you would think oh yeah, yeah. He's you know he's, he's had a career in acting um, you know he's done i think I, I looked him up and he's done 30 or 40 different like film and tv yeah. things over you know up to 90 90 something yeah, um, now. yeah but um but so he's had a you know he's had a career in acting but never actually anything anything it... big and to be perfectly honest this is probably the most Notable thing he's ever done Yeah,
1: is his debut according to IMDB Yeah, um, not like Lynn Perry Lynn Pe- well Was that her debut? She was obviously Coronation Street in the 70s and the 80s Yeah, um, and
2: then the newspapers After that <laughs> <laughs> And she had a meltdown
1: She did indeed, didn't she? It was a post-Coronation Street Meltdown, yeah Interestingly, um, Freddie Fletcher Last movie When Saturday Comes, which is the football movie With Sean Bean Oh, yes. Playing a character called Judd. Ah. (laughs) So, full circle. Talk us through Kes, mate. Kes or Kes, I don't care how we're going to describe this movie. Some people call it one, some people call it the other. uh, Thoughts and feelings. What's what's your reaction to it this time round?
2: Well, uh, yeah, I haven't seen it for a couple of years, even though I've seen it a number of times before. Same as yourself. Well familiar with um, Ken Loach's work and... um, can recognize that using the um, non-actors who are just the people who are the real people in that situation as, a, as the background characters yes you do get some stuttering line delivery sometimes and people try not to look at the camera yeah when they're, when they're but that's I think that's more than offset by the realism of, that you get of, oh, yeah. of them when it's, particularly if the background characters, where you're not, it's not the main performers, so it's not as jarring. So that that brings a lot to the whole experience and, and gives it that. What he's known for, the social realism and the social critique and the, the the class, the class deprivation that he's highlighting across any in any number of films in different ways. This d- does set the standard for his later films as far as that impact that you have. Yep undeniably it's um it really is dire the situation <laughs> for the, for for them as a as as a community and, and individuals you've you've got thankfully through the through the um the authenticity of the accents and and the the people playing the roles that they are in real life you, you do feel the full tragedy um oh, yeah and and the glimmers of hope that are there and how people just try and snatch what they can from that. And unfortunately, you know, throughout this film, you see that sometimes people are are, are snatching some form of um, pleasure from knocking somebody else down. Um, Yeah,
1: Judd in particular. Yeah,
2: yeah, Judd in particular, who is incredibly frustrated with his lot in life, um, you know, despite the posturing that, um, you know, the women are going to have, um, a lot of luck if he ends up picking them <laughs> on his night out and all these kind of things. You can tell he's, you know, he's a very angry man that is very frustrated at his lot in life and woe betide anybody who, who seems to be rising out of that because he'll knock him back down into it because yeah. nobody's going to have a better life than than he is. Um, so if he can't improve his own, he'll make somebody else's worse. But yeah, it's not a film about training kestrels. You know, although you get a few passages read from, from a, a I don't know if it's a real book or whether it's a, just a um a prop piece of mm. um some text that are, are, are read out. Um ultimately it's it's not about the training of, of the kestrel obviously that's a metaphor and and a used just to to symbolize that somebody can look outside what they're actually doing even if um unfortunately it doesn't actually uh, pan out in the end. Yeah, I so. think
1: I think I read somewhere that Billy You know, if you're going to read into these sort of things, Billy ultimately can be trained, but he can't be tamed, Um, you know, no matter how much schooling is forced. Adulthood is actually forced upon him, isn't it, as well, you know, because he's a very young looking 15 year old, you know. Oh, he's
2: he's a a, a sprite of a a lad (laughs) at 16 and the prospect is that within a few weeks of of where the film ends, Mm. he's going to be sent down a mine.
1: Yeah. Exactly. And you think, oh, my God, you know, the, the poor lad can't even, you know, hold his own in a goal, you know, in a, in a goal playing football. Yeah. Um, you know, this whole thing about it can never be tamed. It's all down to the circumstances. Like you say, what else is there outside of, you know, for the guys in that particular village or that particular town, apart from life down the pit? And I think Billy has this natural curiosity, which is charming. He has this very charming sort of childlike wonder about him that's reflected in the fact that you know he goes and seeks out the book on kestrels and the scene which i sort of describe as the show and tell scene where he's talking about the the bird in front of the class which we'll probably go back to in a minute it's just fascinating and again he's one of the non professional people in this film he's not an actor no. and it's an outstanding performance from somebody that's had no professional training
2: absolutely there's there's you can't take anything away from from that performance it's you know, he had a, a a career not not blindingly high, but he had a career afterwards and yeah. some good performances elsewhere as well. But really, nothing nothing he did subsequently matched his his outstanding performance in this.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I think with the character of Billy, I, I made a quick note. I said his brain works in a simple way, but he's not stupid. He's
2: definitely no, of course he's not. He's 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 got he's got that desire for something more. He realizes that he, you know what he doesn't want he's got he's still got a a child's hope in him. He's still got um uh the idea that he wants something more. I mean he's not he's not stupid. He's got the, the cunning and uh, the acceptance of his lot in some ways and he, you know, he's not a he's not a golden child either. There's a there would be a tendency now, I think, if this film was made to, to be more of a redemption story of him if he was a bad lad or to just paint him out as being this angel surrounded by um, a hell scape whereas yeah. he you know he's, he's a he's a bad lad in some ways you know he's just petty petty bit of nicking and swearing and all that kind of stuff hmm.
1: but it does touch uh, upon that he had quite a bit of a run-in with some gang that he'd been hanging about with that led to you know a couple of arrests and a few fines so he's obviously appeared in court and his mum's helping him pay those fines off with his paper round and things like that and, yeah. and you just get this impression that if he doesn't go down the pit, if he doesn't get this job in the mine after he's left work, he's going to slip back down that road um, yeah. unless he does something about it you know. and there's this glimmer of hope for him in the form of the Kestrel, which is a marvellous, this whole thing, there's, there's a couple of scenes I want to talk about, there's one piece of magical cinematography, just the whole way this whole thing is filmed and it's the, it's the training sequence You you get a break from the grimness from the bleakness and the the harsh reality of him, when you watch this magical scene, and it's obviously real. You know, David Bradley has got mm. this rapport with this bird. He's got this trust. He's got this deep affection for it. And watching him, you know, with the bird and, and flying the, the piece of meat round on the string and the bird landing on his hand and, and that there's this music playing in the background. And it's just like, wow, you know, just for like two or three minutes, you're taken out of the grimness of the whole situation.
2: Yeah, yeah, The the... The background that you have of you know historic ruins and age old mining and and the the deprivation and such like um, that that is completely juxtaposed with mm. this serenity that is you know without any kind of timescape on it uh, that does show um, a complete difference to to the viewer of what his reality his dark reality is of his life and that just slight high point of freedom and release yeah. that he gets with the bird just think, impacts, I
1: think. It yeah, and impacts. I think also it's it's a bit of a release for Ken Loach, who's probably been tired for the last four or five years to to quite cheap, you know, budget um restricted T V plays. Mm. And now he's got a little bit of a budget to play with he can spread his wings almost for want of a better phrase, yeah. you know, and actually create an actual piece of cinema. Talking to the cinematography, the, the the color palette on this film is, is as grim and as grey as the as the storyline. It, it's it's <laughs> it is is typical Barnsley. That's the only way I can say it. it's pure Yorkshire, isn't it? It's very grey, mm. but it's all naturally lit. There is no evidence here of any studio work or artificial lighting or anything like that, which just adds to the whole realism to the movie.
2: Oh, particularly you know, in some of the scenes such as. Um you know in the school for example mm. you you you've got that that level there were you know the availability of artificial lighting wasn't maybe as prevalent and also the keenness to actually have expenditure on it so you know they're going down the corridors that are quite dimly lit yeah. and it's and it's not like maybe some private school where it's all wood paneling and that's why it looks darker and stuff this is just because they they're not willing to pay out for you know the the, the lighting or that some of the windows are boarded up you know
1: <laughs> it just adds to the whole realism of the thing. It has this documentary feel to it, it'll fly on the wall almost, you know. Yeah, absolutely.
2: It's it's very it's it's a, a quasi documentary, um particularly using the, the people who are the real life people. Yeah. Um and you do you that's got that fascination when you watch it, that you and that's what you're seeing that you know that this is the, the grim reality of what people's lives were, the, on the sort of slag heap of the class system, <laughs> True. um which you know okay there's there is a glimpse into sort of the mix of what there is within that community that there are people who do have a bit more affluence even within that community or standing in a bookshop asking about a Noel Coward book yes um, yeah whereas you know in that evening there's the working men's club where they're singing body songs about um is it Marrows um... <laughs> that
1: was it yeah yeah oh what a <laughs> yeah. beauty quite a famous musical song yeah
2: yeah even within a town like Barnsley where there's you know seemingly little prospects and little difference compared to the rest of the country at the time and and perhaps now um still there's there is a a social class system that can be seen and you know
1: do you know the biggest example the way
2: Mm. way it lit just really does reinforce that certain people are at one end of that and that is the reality of their lives you know sleeping in the same bed with his older brother and and you know things like that and that they're, they're the best hope they can have um as aspiration is not better jobs or or better housing or anything like that it's you know judd wanting to go out and and pull pull the best bird and get <laughs> drunk and um his mum wanting to go out there and and try and and capture some some bloke as well
1: exactly yeah she needs to find herself a husband at some point you know before she gets too old interesting you're saying about the social divide that's almost you know that is evident there the one that stood out for me and it's just sort of come to me in the library he's berated for having dirty hands muddy hands and you'll get the books dirty but then at school. He's got a teacher that's quite happily to push, quite happy to push him face down into mud. You know, it's yes. a completely different. You know, sort of set of attitudes there.
2: Well, they probably didn't have an, a library at the school, so it was all right.
1: That's true. Yeah, you never know. It's, yeah, the, would there have been a school library? There would have been some form of school library. I there suppose. would there
2: would have been, but it would have had you know educational some, some, bro- some broken copies of Shakespeare and and some of the classics there, and that was a bit and um, a. a Forty-year-out-of-date Encyclopedia Britannica,
1: that kind of thing. It wouldn't. <laughs> so, true. True. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing that. Um. Certainly nothing on training hawks or falcons. Oh, in the, no. Yeah. There were two scenes that take you out of, out of this whole documentary, this whole realism thing, and I'd forgotten these. I've seen this film three, four times, five times possibly. There's a scene when he's um, at the paper round. And he stops and reads the the dandy or the Beano. is it the dandy it's, it's, yes on the hillside on yeah. the hillside he's reading the dandy and loach then focuses in on it's desperate Dan isn't it I believe the it is, yeah story. punching
2: yeah. the guy into the next into next week yeah
1: well you know and it's it's just he focuses on each individual picture in that comic panel, strip each panel yeah yeah and there's the narration obviously from David Bradley and just for a minute it it just takes you out. Of well, it takes you into the mind of David Bradley of 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 poor old Casper, you know, that that's his little moment of escapism, that he's you know because his whole life is dictated by getting up early because his brother gets up early, having to then get up you know an hour later to do this paper round, then it's school. Well, and
2: his, his bike's been nicked by his
1: brother. bike's been nicked by his brother. You know, everything is just a struggle from the minute his, his eyes are open, you know, in the morning. And he just has this brief respite of five minutes where he can go into this other world of comic books. And, and it's, I, I thought that was just a marvellous touch that Loach took the time himself to focus on that in a different way that took it out of the style that he'd been sort of introducing us to.
2: Yeah, so it's a, it's a, it shows there's, there's respite for... Him, although brief, and for the viewer as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. The other thing, the other thing that takes us out of the film a little bit. We're going to talk about the football scene in just a second, hopefully. But when they score a goal, captions come up at the bottom of the screen, as if as if it was a match being screened on Match of the Day on a Saturday night. You know, you know, Tottenham one, Man United nil, whatever it was. You know, comes up at the bottom, which I thought was a bit bizarre. You know, very surreal almost
2: yeah, I mean that's that's breaking the fourth wall, mm. which maybe maybe didn't fit, I mean, I can understand where they're coming from as far as that the um the Brian Glover character was um you know decided to take off his shirt, and there he is wearing the Manchester United shirt, <laughs> and he's obviously playing out his own fantasies um at the expense of the children <laughs> um and and not in the way that um many subsequent um <clears throat> stories have come out about teachers doing that kind of thing, yeah. but um, in in this case, you know that that maybe was uh, sort of more in the if they if they'd maybe stylized that a little bit different, that it was <clears throat> um, sort of through the the characters eyes of of Brian Glover that that's how he was seeing it, um, and tying that into no that being mm. his, and it might have actually gelled a bit more that bit, but it, yeah. otherwise it was a it did jar it a bit because as you say the fourth wall being broken even though they've mentioned about what the two
1: teams were I don't think it was yeah. a bad thing it didn't spoil it in any way for no
2: no but... no it just didn't quite
1: yeah but you can see fit. what they were trying to achieve there like you say Brian Glover imagining that you know this this match is being televised and Jimmy Hill's commentating or something like that you know let's just talk about this football match possibly the, <laughs> the finest eight or nine minutes of British cinema ever
2: it's probably my favorite football match.
1: You don't like football anyway. Do you? <laughs>
2: I'm not a soccer fan no. Um so yeah, it's 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 brutal.
1: It's, it's, yeah, it's for a football.
2: It's, yeah. it, it's uh you know, it's it's the the sports teacher um having his um his moment of fame, uh, reliving his youth, reliving his lost potential that he had in his mind of what he could have been from um, going on from his school age potentially as a as a but it's all done at the expense of the of the kids yep. who um who are there playing on you know, he's got this, this thing in his mind that he's he's living out this fantasy of being a um what would have been, I suppose is it first division they were called at that time. It was first yeah. division football player. When in actual fact he's he's playing on a sloping football pitch <laughs> on, on a on a hillside which has got bent goalposts, you know, which bow in the middle because of the kids hanging off them like True. monkey bars. Yeah. The kids you know how you can tell who's on whose team anyway, because none of the kids are wearing anything that that even remotely matches each no. other. Um, and one of the kids, as we know from the, you know Casper, is wearing a, a pair of shorts that are, <laughs> uh, that go up above his nipples. Um, <laughs> it, you know, it's it's it just sort of sort of shows where the focus is with the education there that the only person to actually be wearing a, an actual football kit is the actual sports teacher. And it's obviously his own. Mm. Uh, yeah. Definitely. So, mm. um, but otherwise it, it's, it's just brutal for the kids there actually playing the game and um, you know, you can imagine it even worse when you're actually there on this cold hillside with the wind blowing and the, the potential could, rain and the cold. And just,
1: You could feel the cold in that scene. You could see yeah. the kids were absolutely freezing. And fair play to Barry Hines because he wrote the screenplay with Ken Loach as well. He adapted, he adapted Kestrel for a knave to actually do the screenplay here. I remember those football games. I remember having to line up and being picked. To go on what team, and it was always the poor fat kid or the kid with the glasses that was always picked last, and the rest of the team. Oh, do we have to, sir? You know, he has captured that absolutely spot on. That whole thing. You know, the two yeah. kids shivering by the goalpost, waiting for the action to come up that end of the pitch, and, and just the <laughs> brutal is a very good word. The brutality of Ryan Glover. Uh, it's great it's superb and I mean no wonder that man went on to become a star because that performance is something special.
2: Absolutely yeah I mean you hope he didn't take that from his own experience of of how he was a teacher (laughs) uh, in the labouring school but yes I there was a familiarity there for me that um, even when we were at school sort of looking at each other about because obviously it's accentuated and exaggerated Mm. but the sports teachers tended to be quite brutal with the kids, anyway. I oh, mean, particularly yeah. at my school. Yeah. Um, and and the experience, although we didn't have a, a sloping football pitch, <laughs> um, we, we we were fortunate in that respect. But we did have, say. Um, the the, the cross country runs which weren't a cross country they were down like some local country lanes and and across the the occasional field yeah but going, going past the local gypsy encampment where <laughs> as as you approached it <laughs> yeah. you had to you had to pick up any large stones or half bricks you could from the side of the road to throw at the dogs that would come after you as you Brilliant. passed the gypsy camp and there was one lad who went and dis- you know disappeared for three three hours because he got chased up a tree and and the, the teach and the teachers were concerned about his welfare when he came back he just got berated and punished for it for being lying. Um, oh my yeah God. <laughs> so you know that, that's the the grim reality that i can i can actually understand from this that the teachers the teachers are, are are interested in in any way coddling the the kids it's just the discipline and and carrying out to some extent with brian glover's character it's a certain amount of sadism yes really yeah um what you know a Obviously, a complete bully who who has to take his pleasure from attacking kids and particularly a a weedy um, 16 year old who's more the size of a 12 year old um, in in the shower and and stuff. It just just shows the mentality and the different ethos as far as how teaching was at the time, which was still part of the early 80s child that uh, i had yeah. um but yeah. brutal yes brutal <laughs> is the word
1: <laughs> that that sadism is also evident in the scene with the caning obviously you know <laughs> you know sadism caning sort of goes together
2: uh, one, one, one of the lads who just brought a message yeah it just it just brought a message to the head teacher and he got caned as well because he's just well you're here so i'm gonna cane you
1: well he actually had the um The cigarettes in the pocket, didn't he? Because the the other kids had like dumped them on him just to hide them, and the poor old sod got found out. And and again, it's that teacher just trying to justify his actions. The headmaster trying to justify why he's caning, and he said, "I will see the same faces here again next week." But unfortunately, it's part of the thing I have to do, you know. And he's making this whole speech of of justifying why he's actually beating the life out of these poor sods, you know. To be honest, three of them, what was it? Three of them, two of them been caught smoking. One, yeah. of the, one of them coughed in assembly. <laughs> yes. And it actually wasn't the one who coughed. It wasn't him who coughed, no, no. <laughs> and the other one came to bring a message from another teacher. So it was just it just highlights. But it's, it's another example of, you know, just this brief period of levity within this very grim story, you know. Love it, absolutely love it. Can we talk about what I think is possibly... The most magical part of this movie, which is when Colin Welland, who I think is a fantastic actor, I absolutely absolutely. love Colin Welland, playing the teacher and English teacher, and he's he's, he's talking about fact and fiction. This is how it all starts. So, you know, he needs somebody to tell somebody about, you know, a fact that happens in their life and, and poor old Billy can't think of anything. Until somebody pipes up and says, well, he's got a he's got a hawk, sir, and he trains it. And sort of reluctantly, Billy starts to tell the story of, you know, how he found the hawk and all that lot. And it's until he gets up in front of the class and it's just this look of, well, it's not sort of wonder on the kids' faces as well. You know, you can tell they're sort of like totally enthralled in what he's saying. But also, at last, Billy's got something to say that people are actually interested in he's not you know he's not being picked on he's not the focus of you know being bullied or you know um having the piss taken out of him or whatever it may be he's actually got something to say and it's something worthwhile and it's something different and it's something fascinating and I think that that segment is possibly one of the best scenes in the whole movie
2: I think it's not just it's you're absolutely right that yeah Billy, this is sorry, Casper. This is is you know this is where he actually gets to be himself and doesn't mm. have to be afraid of what the reaction's going to be because people are actually lapping up what he's saying and not just the other kids, the the um, the, the teacher as well, um, uh, Mr. Farvin, mm. um, as you say, Colin, Colin Welland. I actually think that not only is he actually interested and in, in what's being said, but I think this is actually a a point where he actually gets some respite as well because you've got to imagine that as a teacher yeah. um t- teaching kids that are, are despondent that that you, <laughs> you know that you know you, you're you taking them through their schooling their reading and writing and and things but ultimately all those kids maybe bar one yeah are gonna are gonna if they don't drift into um some something else that might be dodgy, like criminality or something other. The vast majority of them are going to, just going to be destined for the mines. No matter yeah. how well they do at school, they're still yeah. going to end up down the mine in this grim, um dead end um, position. Yeah. So for for a moment, the teacher can actually lap up some some respite for himself from <laughs> that grim There's a grimminess.
1: glimmer of light in that classroom yeah. for him, isn't and, there? And yeah.
2: So which is why potentially, you know, he ends up chasing it up afterwards. Yeah, um, which again with,
1: is a with, great with scene in in the shed. Um, yeah, where he meets meets Kes for the first time, and and it's just this whole interaction. Well, it's it's a conversation between him and Billy, with the Kestrel watching on. You know, as just like this mm. audience, and and they have this marvelous conversation about human beings and animals and how they interact with each other, mm. and just how remarkable and how mysterious it all is.
2: And then there's a reverse when they're in the field, yeah. and he's actually comes along, and he's actually flying Kes, mm. and there's a a, a slight reversal reversal in that the, for the first time, Billy is actually in charge. He tells the teacher yes. to, to 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 be quiet and to stand away from him. And he and he do, and, you know your bears and and sort of in in gentle reassuring terms says yeah I'm, I'll I'll stand all the way over here. And what's you know and and that's a slight turn around in the sort of power structure which which they probably would both be used to in in the school, um, but that's so incredibly brief yeah. of their lives. It's uh, shocking to think whether he might have ever experienced that again, the poor lad.
1: Are we saying that this is quite a despondent, a bleak movie, or is, I mean, because we'll probably have to talk about the final act in a second, but Mm. on the whole, I mean, we're saying it's grim, it's bleak, it's despondent, it's it's not a feel-good movie. You know, you, you look at these moments of levity and these moments of hope and these funny scenes there's a real combination of styles and and sort of genres within this one movie.
2: It it is overall a grim, grim reality. Mm. um, And it is very much, as we said before, the sort of social commentary. um, And uh, because it was, because it's made, as with most of Ken Loach's stuff, it's made about the time rather than it being looking back on a previous time. It's actually trying to tell how it is at that, you know, that day. I think there is a grimness that needs to be swallowed Mm. but in with all of that there is like these glimmers of hope and you just and it makes you think that it's the circumstances that create this that are sort of the manufactured um, situation and, and environment that's been created for these people that makes them like they are whereas there are the glimmers of hope, there are the glimmers of humanity, there are the glimmers of, of aspiration and people being able to reach out of it if they were only given the chance. And and that is something to hold on to that, you know, if you do change the circumstances that the people are in, um the, the poverty and the lack of um opportunity, then these people could be a, a whole lot more. And that's that's worth holding on to as as a bright as a bright point.
1: Yeah. I mean, as it as the film draws to its conclusion. We're still not a hundred percent sure in what direction Billy's going to go. Um, no, it's it's left. I mean, it's even more of an abrupt ending in the book, from what I remember. And that final act, you know, we're waiting, we're hoping for that marvelous sort of happy ending. But it's, it's this isn't Hollywood. <laughs> this this isn't. It's, Ken, ho- it's a Ken Lurch film. Yeah, this isn't Hollywood for God's sake. You know, it's never going to happen. This is real life here. Um, and in the last twenty minutes, we get this punch to the stomach that. It finishes the film perfectly, actually. I think, and and if we're being honest, we know that the ending's not going to be good. It's a massive heartbreak all round. And and like I, I wrote down here. I said, it's Billy Casper, not Billy Elliot, this movie. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That that
2: that is exactly right. I mean, that was a Hollywoodized um, sort of telling of a child's uh, a northern child's um, dreams and yeah. Uh, And this and this isn't isn't that all this is this is this is the reality Mm. um uh, that's that's a brilliant brilliant thing yeah Mm. i I must remember that in future when i'm talking about this that it's it's billy casper not billy elliott it should be on the posters from
1: now on mate yeah you just put a tm after that
2: copyright it. The, the
1: ending i mean that final act the final 20 minutes we know where this is going because we know it's ken loach because we know the general tone of the film um i think i read somewhere that someone wrote it's got the animal's name in the title. you know it's not going to end up well, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know lassie films don't very often end up happy endings, you know <laughs> but um just just go through the ending with us i mean you can just see it, can't you I mean Judd's reaction just becomes more and more intense yeah
2: and... i mean it's it's like we say i mean it's it's spurred on by um by by billy casper the young lad he you know he takes it takes a chance to actually try and be on the make in a small way he thinks that there's a chance for him to get away with this because the odds are in his favor yeah uh, but because he's so incredibly unlucky yeah his his <laughs> his his inherent lack of luck as a person <laughs> is so strong that it overcomes <laughs> all the odds to mean that uh an outside chance um in in a in a bet can actually benefit somebody else. Yep. Um and, and then he is is therefore blamed and vilified for it and, you know, escapes being beaten the living mm. shit out of. Mm. So there's there's retribution coming and where that retribution comes, obviously the the there was only one way it could actually happen that was gonna impact upon um Billy enough to actually end the film and kind of crush what was left of
1: him yeah it's it's the the perfect ending to this film it it, it did not deserve a happy ending this film no way you don't want that you you like the idea that there is light at the end of this tunnel like you say and also you've seen it from other people's sort of hopes and like you say colin welland and 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 their sort of views on life and it is the, the the correct way to end this movie um
2: yeah, I can imagine the character going, you know, end up in some, you know, the dead end job of the mine or whatever um, after after the film finishes, and um, they can't even bring themselves to take up the traditional hobby, uh, you know, of um, of the working classes in that area, which was um, pigeons. Yes, because that would be too close to what he's lost and too heartbreaking, so he can't even do that. Yeah, and. You know, somewhere down the line, there's the whole uh, minor strikes and losing his entire livelihood and the whole community has been devastated, you know, within, you know, within him getting to his early 30s, yeah. really. And that's his entire life just down the pan. And there's no, you know, there's no relent for him potentially in the entire rest of his life, knowing what we know that that is the sad reality as you say not giving it some kind of hollywood gloss as a as an end that would be unrepresentative this is this is ken lowe she wants yeah. to say how it is
1: <laughs> it's like you said if it if poor old billy casper didn't have any bad luck he'd have no luck at all you know that's yeah. just the way his whole <laughs> yeah. and, and his whole life you've you've predicted his whole life basically there because that is exactly how it was going to turn out in your um remarkable rating system how would you rate this movie my friend <laughs>
2: Uh, well I'd say uh, unless you've got any particular version based upon our review of it and the type of film it is, mm. I'd say it's one that you should, you know, make the effort to, to go see in a cinema.
1: Yes.
2: Because I think there's the the atmosphere you would get from seeing it in a cinema on a big screen just sat there, the the concentration on it, because it's so stark in a way, yeah, as a film, and seeing it up there large with all the the, the dips in the the lighting and the, being able to see, the you know, the dirt on his face.
1: Yeah, that was a thing, that, thing as well, that, yeah, uh, yeah.
2: Yeah, it, and I think it, it deserves to be seen on, on that setting. And to be honest, although showing it to um, to kids in the North when they were the same age and, and you know, it might not be a healthy thing to, to do to them, <laughs> to expose them to that, um, I do think that it, it, in some ways... It is important for it to be um, now as a social history, although there's still parallels for deprivation now. I think it, it's something that should be um, uh, not maybe not pushed as such, but it should be encouraged amongst um, people in general and particularly younger people to realise, you know, what life is, has been like. Um, so, yeah, go out your way to see it if possible at the cinema. And if not, then, you know, definitely chase it up in all the other forms that i would suggest you know if it's on television and and such like although you do have to probably be in the right frame of mind to watch it
1: yeah yeah not a feel-good movie well there there are some feel-good moments in it there's definitely the feeling of hope in there
2: the feel-good bit is you get to the end and you go phew i'm glad it won't me
1: yeah exactly but it, it doesn't stop you thinking do you know what i want to watch that again i could i could. I could watch that again today, you know, I only watch oh, a couple of oh, yeah,
2: absolutely. I mean, you know the the Ken Loach's films in general. I mean, okay, there might be a few that aren't as great as the others, but mm. they all have that to them that you you go through them and you you might think there's wobbly bits here and there, but they en- enhance it in in the in the main. Yeah, and you get to the end of it and you think that wasn't enjoyable, but it was <laughs> it was it was an, you know it, it was that the authenticity of it is something that i i, I want to watch again yes
1: you'll take that um, away with you and, yeah
2: and as i say we seeing on the big screen last year um riffraff yeah um was was the same thing i mean obviously that's a bit more close to my heart because of the trade union side of things of course, yeah. um and that's you know that is why I, that is why I met Ken Loach and I picked him up from the station and took him to the screen and then took him back to the station and had a good chat with him. But oh, um and he did did talk about Kez and I can't remember any of the things <laughs> to actually quote that you said. It's really annoying me. But um <laughs> but yeah, as Kez as a as a as a film and, you know, to search out Ken Loach's other films, rather than just you know, Kez is is important, I think, as a film. And you obviously, you know, it impacted upon you in stage review from from your youth, yes. same with me. And I think that should be a, a, a case for other people as well. It, it should be important within the culture. And, and, and as, as a British film and about British life, I think that's why it was incredibly important that we, sooner or later, um, featured it on the podcast. Yeah. Because it, it is intrinsically British.
1: Yeah. We we reviewed this, Charlie and I, on Stinking Paws about four years ago. Yeah, and yeah. And I just wanted the chance to talk again, with somebody about it, which is why I sort of brought it to the table this week. I don't think it would appeal to everybody. The style of the movie will definitely not appeal to your average moviegoer, certainly not your big Hollywood blockbuster fan. And for some people, they may struggle a wee bit, you know, with with accents and language and stuff like that. But I will say Persevere. It's a very beautiful looking film. It's heartbreaking. Um, Could almost be a love story in a way. There is this genuine affection between Billy and the bird.
2: It's a love story in the same way that Romeo and Juliet is a love story, though. <laughs> 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 so, <laughs> that nobody comes out of it alive. Very really.
1: true. Very true. <laughs> but but I think it does perfectly. It captures that whole oh, that growing up process, that confusion of growing up, and and that the school system in the sixties and the seventies that we were familiar with even up to the early 80s as well yeah there's that whole recognition for me of yeah I actually went through that and I I recognize that teacher I recognize that that situation I think it's a great piece of nostalgia but it's also so realistic at the same time and in my rating system it's a five-star movie for me it's it's just watch again and again and again
2: that's deserved yeah that's deserved I, I think
1: so Okay, that's Kez from 1969. Let's take a short break and we'll be back with what we're watching next time. (laughs) Okay, Stephen, next time, not necessarily next time on the next episode, but the next time we get together. Yeah. will be your selection of movie my friend what are we going to be reviewing next time
2: next time we're going to be going for a comedy romance fantasy um, from only a couple of years before Kez which is um, from 1967 mm-hmm. um, starring Peter Cook and Dudley Moore it's uh, bedazzled <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> have not seen that uh, not the Brendan t- Fraser remake, the no, actual oh God, yeah, no. a
2: good film that it was based upon.
1: I haven't seen it for over 20 years, 30 years possibly.
2: I, I haven't seen it for about 10 years, so I am hoping it stands up to, t- to um, my memory. Yeah. Otherwise, otherwise, we'll have a lot to say about how bad it is.
1: Excellent. I'm, oh, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. This Big Peter yeah. Cook Dudley Moore fan? Yeah. I am. I'd, I'd like oh that yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: Peter and Dud, yeah. And you know, I thought with the, the up- upcoming season of... Um, of, of spookiness, and you know, having something that at least leads us in slightly with a devil uh, is... Uh, <laughs> Ease us is, in
1: gently, yeah? Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: So. Looking forward to that, as I say, that's one I haven't seen for a long, long time. Isn't Raquel Welsh in it? Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah yes. Yeah. Um, I th- yeah,
2: Raquel Welsh, yeah.
1: Sure she is. Excellent. That's really good choice there, mate. Thank you very much. Stephen, thank you for being part of the Real Britannia family. You are now... Well and truly, feet under the table.
2: Oh, my pleasure. I'll make sure I, um, I do exploit that as much as possible. Exactly. You will use than it welcome. to get a discount in pubs and all sorts of
1: things. <laughs> you can do, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's the golden ticket, mate, obviously. You know that. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this has been the Real Britannia Podcast. You can find this and other episodes on the website, realbritannia.libsyn.com. Follow us on Twitter at rbritanniapod.com. You can email us MP3s or emails themselves to realbritannia at gmail.com or you could join the Facebook group, facebook.com forward slash pod. I have been informed by a reliable source as well, Stephen. There's a very good podcatcher out there called Player FM, which apparently is very good for actually listening to podcasts because it actually will pause at the point you stop and you don't have to go back to the beginning. So all our episodes are available on Player FM as well. Stephen, once again, sir, thank you very much. My pleasure. See you very soon. Take care. Cheers, mate. Bye-bye. Bon voyage. Goodbye!
2: Good luck. Thank you.
0: hand up, sir.